This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Tim, Winnie, Lydia, Caleb F., and Israel. I didn't think we were going to be taking as long a break as we did, but it's good to be back with the big question in the new year. This Sunday is actually Super Bowl Sunday, and I was looking forward to telling you in advance who was going to win the Super Bowl. But unfortunately, none of you asked that question, so you're just going to have to wait, watch the game, and find out. In this episode, we're going to tackle a few serious questions, and then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Tim. He asks, who are the Pharisees? Well, considering how often the Pharisees are mentioned in the New Testament, this is an important question to ask. Simply put, there are two major factions in Israelite society as described in the Gospels. They're called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees are basically religious conservatives, while the Sadducees are more or less religious liberals. Now, these two factions are opposed to each other, but they also work together in wielding political power. Generally speaking, the Sadducees seem to be popular with the elites, while the Pharisees have more traction with the common people. What's significant for us, with our own divisions between conservatives and liberals, is that Jesus doesn't treat one side as the good guys and the other as the bad. He's critical of both of them, because neither one recognizes him as Messiah. It's not conservatism or liberalism that God calls us to, but faith. And now Winnie asks, how did God just magically heal people? Well, it sure seems like magic, doesn't it? When Jesus, for example, encounters a blind man, a guy no doctor can heal, Jesus just says some words and the man can see. There was a fellow in the book of Acts who thought that this was exactly magic, and he tried to pay the apostles to teach him to do the same kind of magic. His name was Simon Magus, or Simon the Magician. And to this day, when people try to pay money to get into authority, we call that simony. But Jesus wasn't working magic. It was better than that. Remember, God created all things, and Jesus is God. In John's Gospel, we learned that everything created was made through Jesus, and without him was nothing made. Ordinarily, God works through means. In other words, if someone is sick and prays for healing, the ordinary way that God would answer that prayer is through a doctor's skill. But God is also free to use extraordinary means. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he performed his miracles. Think about it this way. All of the ailments and afflictions that Jesus encountered were the result of living in a sinful, fallen world. Death itself is the result of the fall into sin. So when Jesus healed people miraculously, he was showing his power to reverse the ravages of sin. And that's exactly what he did for us at the cross. 
Jesus gave himself so that we might be free of sin. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Lydia. Let's give her a round of applause. Here's Lydia's question. If we are made in God's image, is Jesus or not? Because if Jesus came down from heaven as a baby, he is an image of God like us, but he is God too. Lydia, I'm so glad you asked this question because the doctrine of human beings made in God's image is so important and it ties directly to the incarnation of Jesus, to his atoning sacrifice on the cross, and to his work as our mediator today. Let's start at the beginning, literally, Genesis chapter 1. When the Bible describes God's creation of the first human beings, man and woman, Adam and Eve, it introduces the concept of God's image. Verse 26 says, let us make man in our image. Now, the word man here stands for mankind or humanity, so it includes male and female, as is obvious in verse 27, which says, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. That's Hebrew poetry. Instead of rhyming, it repeats the same idea in different words for emphasis. So God created man, and male and female he created them are saying the same thing, only in different words. But the question is, what does being created in God's image mean? Well, the only explanation in Genesis 1 is another example of Hebrew poetry. Verse 26 in full reads, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So being made in God's image means being created to reflect God's likeness. Another way of describing reflecting God's likeness is to glorify God, which is why the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that your chief end, your highest purpose, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, because he made you in his image to reflect his likeness. My favorite explanation for being made in God's image is to think about how a stamp or a seal works. In fact, Jesus used this comparison in Matthew 22 when he asked whose image was stamped on the coin. Caesar's? Well, then render to Caesar the things stamped in his image and render to God the things that are God's. In the same way that the emperor could stamp coins with his image on them, God stamps human beings with his image which means they belong to him and are made for him. Now, it's not just Adam and Eve who were made in God's image. It's every human being who comes after them. You are, I am, everyone is. It's not just Christians, not just believers who are made in God's image. Again, it's everyone. And that means everyone was made to glorify God, and everyone possesses the inherent worth and dignity of being God's special creatures. In Matthew 25, Jesus says that when we serve the humblest of God's image bearers, we serve him through them. It's also true that when we sin against those image bearers, it's an offense against God. Now, sadly, the first humans fell into sin, and sin marred the image of God in us. Adam did not attain the state of glory that God created us for, and so Jesus came. 
Jesus had to become fully human because to attain that glory, a human image bearer needed to live a life of perfect righteousness. Just as Adam led his people into sin, Jesus led his people into righteousness and life. His perfection is counted as ours. That's what saves us. And then the Holy Spirit works in us to sanctify us. In other words, to restore and repair God's image in us. Which means that, yes, Jesus in his humanity bears the image of God, just like we do. On the cross, he sacrificed himself, even though he was sinless and perfectly righteous, so that everyone who believes in him is counted to be righteous too. And now, seated at the Father's right hand, Jesus is still fully human, still one of us, and he represents us to the Father as our great high priest. In other words, every part of the life and work of Jesus is connected to the doctrine of human beings made in God's image. It is Jesus who glorifies God perfectly, and when we are united to Jesus by faith, we can truly glorify and enjoy God forever. The Bible talks about this as being conformed to the image of Christ. If we are made to reflect Christ's likeness, then we are truly reflecting the likeness of God. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. Our first question is from Caleb F., who asks, Why did Pastor Dan knock over the candle? This is truly a mystery, Caleb. Not everyone witnessed this shocking event, so let me describe it. After communion was over, while we were singing the last verses of our communion song, Pastor Dan walked over to the table and gave it a violent shake, which toppled one of the candles. That candle somersaulted down to the ground and actually landed upside down. There was wax and sand everywhere, but surprisingly, the glass did not break. The candle stood upright on the rim of the glass, no damage done. Now, why did Pastor Dan do this? Was it an accident? Was he angry? Was he trying to show off? There are many different theories, and I don't think we'll ever know for certain until we're in heaven. Even Pastor Dan may not be certain why he did what he did. But he knocked that candle over, there's no doubt about that. And that's why whenever Pastor Dan goes near the communion table, we all hold our breath. And finally, Israel asks, did the Nazis find the Ark of the Covenant? Well, Israel, if you believe what you see in the movies, then you'd think the answer was yes. In Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Nazis do indeed find the Ark, and they make the terrible mistake of looking inside. But it won't surprise you to know that this is just fiction. In reality, the Ark of the Covenant was lost, and no one knows what happened to it. As far as we can tell, the Ark disappeared when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and the Temple was destroyed. This makes a lot of sense when you think about it, because that exile into Babylonian captivity was a judgment on the Old Covenant people of God for their unfaithfulness. The loss of the Ark and the destruction of the Temple represented the loss of God's presence. Now, although the Temple would be restored and the people would return, it's at the time of this exile that the prophets begin to speak of a new covenant that's to come and a messianic priest king who will restore God's people. In other words, Jesus. 
That's all for now. It's good to be back. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking The Big Questions. <laughs>